If you've got a Bible with you, open to Daniel chapter 10, is where we're going to be this morning, Daniel 10. It'll be our last Sunday in Daniel for about six weeks. Uh, we're going to break from this series through the book of Daniel uh, as we launch into our next five series starting next week, uh, looking at uh, what we reflected on last year as we celebrated our fifth anniversary and looking forward to the next five years of ministry the Lord has for us here in faith as we aim to launch as well a capital initiative to begin to raise and generate funding that we'll need to begin to, the process of moving out of a temporary leased space into a more permanent home here within our city. And so I encourage you to be here next weekend as we launch the next five series. But this morning we'll be in Daniel chapter 10, reading the whole chapter together, verses 1 to 21. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as I read it for our hearing this morning. Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz was around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said, Fear not, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And he came to, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips." Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? 
But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This is God's word. Earlier this year in January of 2021, um, I'd been struggling with some staph infections in my nasal cavity for about a year. And I began to experience many of those same symptoms once again. I began to have congestion and runny nose, a scratchy throat. I began to have headaches. Uh, I began to experience this incredibly painful burning sensation within my nasal cavities. I mean, it was like somebody lit a match up there, okay? Um, Took a, a lighter and just stuck it up my nose and pulled the trigger, okay? It was just burning constantly. But as those symptoms continued to ensue, they progressed and I had even different symptoms now than what I had had before because I began to feel fatigued and tired and just like a train had run over me. I began to experience body aches. I began to have like tightness in my chest and shortness of breath. And then finally on the fourth and about the fifth day, when as I was as I went to take a drink of a Coke that I had poured for myself that evening and I realized I couldn't taste it, I knew something else was going on. Uh, that the virus that causes COVID-19 had made its way into my body. Uh, that I had become infected with this virus that had created this worldwide pandemic. And so I had all these symptoms, I had all these signs, I had all these manifestations of things that were going on in my body, but the reason those things were happening, there was a cause behind all of those effects, right? There was a virus that had invaded my body that was attacking my immune system that had caused me to feel the fatigue, that had caused me to have the burning sensation, that had caused all of these other effects in my life. In other words, church, there was something that was in me that was unseen that I couldn't put my eyes on. I couldn't touch it. I couldn't taste it, literally. right? I couldn't feel it. But it was there. It was a present reality that that existed. And it invaded my body. And listen, church, all I'm trying to tell you this morning is this, is that when it comes to the Christian life, the same is true, is that there are spiritual forces in the world around us that you cannot touch, that you cannot taste, that you cannot see, but they are present. And many of the effects that you see in your life at times and in the world around us, they have a cause that go beyond mere history and natural explanations because there are spiritual forces at work that you you are unaware of, that I am unaware of, that are unseen. That these, these effects have a cause. right? And the Bible over and over again tells us that the cause of many of these effects is the fact that we have of the challenges that we face, of the failures that we experience, of the frustrations and discouragements and disappointments that we encounter, right? that they have a cause, a source underneath trying to undo what God has done because we have a real personal and powerful enemy that the Bible calls Satan. And the Bible reveals Satan as being a created being who once was in the service of God, but he, he couldn't stay in his own lane, Right? Right? Because he wanted to usurp power for himself, attempted to exalt himself to the place of God, and consequently, he falls from grace and he takes one-third of the heavenly host with him. Now, the biblical authors, they use some vivid imagery to describe the devil. He's betrayed as a serpent, as a dragon, 
or as a lion, right? These are very vivid pictures used to describe this enemy. He's called in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world. In Ephesians 2.2, the prince of the power of the air. In Matthew 13.19, the evil one. In John 8.44, the father of lies. In John 14.30, the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, an angel of light. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's called an adversary. And the reason he's called an adversary is because every time God advances his purposes in the world, the enemy is looking to abort that advancement. Right? And there are several ways that he does that. And one of the most prevalent ways that has come to mind in recent days for me, over the recent days, even over the last several years, right? if you notice, there's been a recurring pattern. A recurring pattern of those who are in leadership, oftentimes within gospel preaching churches, those who are in leadership experience great falls. Great falls. In fact, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul gives the qualifications for elders, it says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, the same condemnation the devil experienced because of his pride, because of his arrogance, because of his own self-exaltation, because of his swollenness, right, would befall these elders as well, who are recent converts because they'll begin to think that this mission's about them and not about Him. And there's a fall. That it, it grieves my heart every time I see people who've led national, renowned ministries fall to sin, fall to pride, fall to misconduct. That is not coincidence, church. We have a real, a personal, and a powerful enemy who is seeking to destroy and abort the advancements of God's church. And in Daniel chapter 10, we see that as Daniel goes before God, he's seeking the Lord in prayer. He is in sackcloth and ashes, we're told back in Daniel chapter 9. He's been in the book reading. He's been praying. He's been fasting. And he's got these visions that are disturbing to him. Right? And we see that this, Daniel has this vision of this one who would come to give him understanding, but he's been held up by the prince of Persia, and Michael, the prince of his people, Israel, has to come with reinforcements right, to help him break loose and go and deliver to Daniel what Daniel needs in the time that Daniel needs it. Because there are real, unseen forces that you cannot touch, cannot taste, cannot see, but their presence is active. And they are not passive. Not only in your life, but also in the, over, the course of life, over the course of world affairs. Now in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel finds himself in verses 1-4 to in this situation. He's been in captivity for about 70 years because he's close to 90 years old at this point. Right? He's seen a few things. Okay? In the vision in chapter 9, he gets this vision of this 483 years until the coming of the Messiah and the, rest, and, the, but, but, and the restoration of Jerusalem, but the eventual destruction of Jerusalem that would come as well. 
And so he's disturbed by that vision. The altar in Jerusalem at this time, right, when Daniel gets in, in Daniel chapter 10, the altar in Jerusalem has been rebuilt because Cyrus has issued an edict to allow the people of Israel to go back, the Jews go back and begin to rebuild the temple. So they go back and begin to rebuild the temple. The first thing they build is the altar so they can begin to once again offer sacrifices. And so now Daniel finds himself. Right, still exiled in Babylon. The altar's been reconstructed in Jerusalem. They're moving toward the celebration of Passover and Daniel can't be there. He's disturbed. He's confused. He's trying to get clarity. Right? And there is one who is holding up the clarity that Daniel needs. A real, unseen, untouchable, untastable, spiritual Battle is going on. And from this particular text this morning, church, I want us to see three ways that God arms us. We did a whole series on spiritual warfare back in the fall of last year as we looked at the armor of God from the, 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 the book of Ephesians. But listen, I want to, this morning, I want us to see three ways in Daniel chapter 10 that God arms us in order to engage in these spiritual battles, in order to fight these spiritual battles that are very real around us because he gives us three weapons of beholding of feasting and of knowing beholding feasting and knowing let's take a look at each of those three this morning first of all the weapon of beholding that if we're going to fight these spiritual in, in these spiritual battles and not be consumed by them we've got to behold the glory of god behold the glory of god now those of you who are familiar with with Hollywood and actors and actresses, you know, sometimes there'll be very famous actors or very famous actresses that'll make cameo appearances in a movie, right? right? They show up in a particular scene one time, okay? And they show up in that scene and, you know, it's, it's kind of in passing, they're there and all of a sudden they're gone again, right? I, I think of the most, some of the most prevalent cameo appearances of recent years have been by the creator of the Marvel comic book series, a guy by the name of Stan Lee, Okay, and in every Avengers movie, every Iron Man movie, okay, up until the point of his death, he makes a cameo appearance. Okay, he shows up in some scene somewhere as some character. Okay, and so he interacts with the lead roles there on on, on the screen, on the stage. Right, but he makes that's a cameo appearance. And, and so, and, and, and in this particular text, church, I want to show you this morning that what's taking place here in Daniel chapter 10 is Jesus, the very second person of the triune God, is making a cameo appearance in Daniel 10. Okay? He shows up on the scene. He's right there before Daniel's eyes. And he does so in multiple other places in the Old Testament as well. In fact, theologians would call that a Christophany, the appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus whenever he shows up. Right? Whether it be physically or in a vision. And here in Daniel chapter 10, he shows up before Daniel's eyes. Now some would say this is only a da- an angel coming to communicate with Daniel. And the reason they would say that is because in verses 13 and 14, when the man speaks to Daniel, he says that he was jammed up, right? He was held up by the prince of Persia, had to call in reinforcements, and had to wait until Michael showed up so that he could make it all the way on to Daniel. In other words, if this really was the pre-incarnate Jesus, shouldn't he have been able to dispense with the prince of the power of the air, 
right? The prince of Persia shouldn't have been able to dispense with him without calling in reinforcements and being delayed for three weeks, right? If this is really is Jesus, couldn't you just said a word and all of a sudden the battle's over and he just marches forward to see Daniel and get to Daniel when Daniel needed him? However, I want to remind you of what takes place as well in Genesis chapter 32 whenever Jacob, you remember Jacob? Jacob wrestles with who? Wrestles with a man, right? He's wrestling with a man, and he wrestles with this man all night long. All night. They're exchanging blows, going back and forth, right? Putting each other in like, you know, MMA moves on the ground and like trying to get each other to tap out. And finally, right? Finally, the man touches Jacob's hip. And Jacob would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. Because of that touch at his hip. And whenever Jacob emerges in the morning, who does he say he has wrestled with? He doesn't say, I wrestled with Tom from down the street. He says, I've wrestled with God. Now, if Jacob had wrestled with God, couldn't God have just shut it down from the time that Jacob took the first step? Absolutely. So why does God wrestle with Jacob all night long? The only reasonable answer is that God had purposed that it would be so. That God had purposed that they would wrestle all night long. And so the fact that this man is held up for three weeks in this battle with the Prince of Persia, waiting on Michael to arrive, does not necessarily mean this is not the pre-incarnate Christ, because I believe the same thing applies to Daniel that applied to Jacob, that the reason that he's held up for three weeks is because God had purposed that it be so. That this is how it would transpire and play itself out. The reason I hold so strongly that this is indeed a pre, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Christophany, is because of this, this, this piece of evidence. There is an undeniable point of similarity between the description of this man in Daniel 10 and the vision that John has in Revelation chapter 1 when he sees the exalted Jesus before Jesus begins to speak to the seven churches. I want you to notice the similarities. Daniel 10, Daniel sees a man clothed in linen. Revelation 1, John sees a man clothed in a long robe, which would have been a robe made, woven from linen. Daniel 10, he sees a man with a fine belt of gold around his waist. John sees a man with a golden sash around his chest. In, 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 John, in, in Daniel chapter 10, we see his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. Like his like lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. In Revelation chapter 1, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His arms in Daniel 10 like, and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. In Revelation chapter 1, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Daniel 10, his voice was like the sound, uh, 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 the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. In Revelation chapter 1, his voice was like the roar of many roar- waters. In Daniel 10, then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Daniel 10, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Then he said to me, fear not, Revelation 1, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. That sound familiar to anybody in the room other than me. 
Right? Do you see the similarities when Daniel lays eyes on this man who shows up at the, at the, at the Tigris River and this vision that John has on the island of, uh, as he's exiled on the island uh, in Revelation chapter 1? Now you say, why does all this matter? Right? That's interesting Bible, tri Bible trivia, right? <laughs> what, what difference does that make? Listen, one of Satan's schemes... One of the schemes of the prince of the power of the air of our adversary is seduction. It is seduction. Because listen, church, Satan does not come to you with like a big, red, hairy monster with seven eyes and horns coming out of his head and a tail and a pitchfork. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that he comes to us disguised as an angel of light. Right? So in other words, Satan doesn't come and set before you things that would repulse you. He comes and sets before you things that would attract you. And things that would seduce you. And try to draw you in. To make you believe that this table that I've set before you is what's really going to fill the hunger of your soul. That is Satan's scheme. Right? If he showed up with horns and a red hairy body and a pitchfork and a tail, you'd be like, quit playing with me. But he doesn't show up that way. He shows up in things that you and I are drawn to that we find attractive, that we find beautiful, that we believe will be satisfying, that we believe will bring us fulfillment, that we believe, that we believe will satiate those longings and achings of our soul. And if that's one of His schemes, He really does aim to seduce us, then what you and I need is not stronger willpower. Okay? Listen, you don't... Willpower is, is going to get you nowhere in spiritual, real spiritual battles. But what you and I need, if that's how Satan works, then there must be something more beautiful to be set before your eyes that would cause your draw to, jaw to drop and your eyes pop out of your skull like the little cartoon characters from back in the day when they saw something that was incredibly attractive. There's got to be something that's set before you that is more compelling, that is more satisfying, that is more enriching, that is more beautiful and glorious. Which is why I tell you that one way God arms us to fight in these spiritual battles is to behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Daniel's a mess. And Jesus shows up in all of His brilliance. In all of His beauty. Now the question is, how is it that we begin to behold that? How do we get to see that? I want to be careful this morning because I don't want to, there's not a formula for it. Okay? Once again, we're not magicians who are casting spells with incantations. Right? But we are Christians. 
But one of the things we see in Daniel's life, you see is a pattern throughout Scripture, is that what Daniel, before this appearance of Jesus, before Daniel gets this glimpse of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, before all of this, Daniel had gotten serious about seeking the Lord. Right? Previously in, the, in, in Daniel, he'd been reading the book. He'd been reading from Jeremiah. He'd been immersed in the Scriptures. And then what he sees there leads him to a season of prayer and a season of fasting. Look in Daniel chapter, if you look in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, it says, Then, after he reads from Jeremiah, then I turned to face the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So Daniel reads the book, he reads Jeremiah, and then he's on his knees before God, pleading with God, fasting. And then in Daniel chapter 10, in those days, he says, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, ate no meat or wine entered my mouth. It doesn't say that he was fasting completely, but all those fine, rich foods, right? He's not, he's not flipping a filet on the grill, okay? Right? All the fine foods have been removed. And he said, I'm still in this season of mourning. Didn't anoint myself for full, a full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the Tigris River, I lifted my eyes and looked, and there was a man. There was Jesus in all of his glory. See, Daniel had been serious about seeking the Lord. He was reading the scrolls, he was fasting, and he was praying. And listen, church, we're told in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, in that great hall of faith chapter, right? What are we, t- what are we told? That without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He what? Rewards those who seek Him. What does He reward them with, church? A bigger house? What does he reward them with? A Tesla? Right? A a lightning F-150 electric truck? What does he reward them with? Well-behaved children? What does he reward them with? More of himself. They believe that he's there and they press into him. They see more of himself. They see more of his activity in their lives. They see more of his activity around them. They have a greater awareness of what he's doing in the world. That's what he rewards them with. And listen, church, for you and I in our own spiritual battles, this is, this is pivotal because if we're not beholding the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, if we're not pressing in to seek him, to know him, To see His glory, His grace, His mercy, and His majesty. But if we're just kind of going about our daily business and just just living life like a suburbanite in 2021. Some of you are like, I don't live in the suburbs, I live in the country. Okay, a rural resident in 2021. Right, if that's your normative pattern of life. You are a sitting duck when it comes to spiritual battles. 
if you're not behold it, because there's, if there's nothing more beautiful than the attractive spread that Satan lays before you on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and through Facebook and through conversations with friends and through your shopping and through all of these other things, right? Through escalating real estate prices and what can I get and what can I sell? What can I, how can we make moves, right? If all of these things are what captivate you, you're a sitting duck. We need to get serious about seeking the Lord. Because in verse 12, Jesus says to Daniel, I am here, literally, because you were not self-sufficient, Daniel. You refused to be self-sufficient, but rather you humbled yourself and you sought the Lord in prayer. That's why I'm here. So church, what would it look like if we got serious about seeking the Lord in prayer, perhaps even in fasting, setting aside time, specific time, saying no to certain experiences, saying no to certain things, not because there's any magical reward that we're going to receive from that, but just so that we can have intimacy with God and set that time aside for reading and for prayer. What would happen if we got serious about seeking the Lord for gospel advancement in our city? And seeing the glory of God show up and manifest itself in ways we can't even ask or imagine. What would happen if we saw the event next sun, Saturday evening at Celebrate Fate not as just a chance to gather with a bunch of friends who live in our neighborhood and within our city, but we saw that as a place, as a battleground. Because there will be people there who are captive to the enemy. And listen, no, no, no. <laughs> I love all of the print materials we can produce and I love all the graphic design that gets done. Becca does a phenomenal job, but listen, there is no brochure we can put in somebody's hand that's going to release them from the enemy's hand. What if we got serious about seeking the Lord for our, our, our church as we progress into this next five initiative? For God's provision, that our eyes will be fixed and focused on Him. We wouldn't allow other things to distract us things that Satan would set before us to seduce us. But we put one foot in front of the other and follow Jesus wherever He may lead us. If we're going to fight these spiritual battles, we're going to behold the glory of God. Second of all, and these next two will be a lot faster than this one, I promise. Second of all, we've got to feast on the Word of God. In verses 15 and 19, Daniel goes from withering at the voice of Jesus to wanting the voice of Jesus. I find this fascinating. In verse 15, when Daniel hears of this unseen battle in the spiritual realm that's been going on as Jesus has been there fighting with the prince of Persia and he, he has this, he's all this, this, this troubledness around these visions that he's had. Daniel is racked with, he says, pain, essentially. It's painful for him to think about what's going to happen to his people in the latter days of what's coming for them even in the future. And it causes Daniel to wither says the visions have drained his strength. In fact, he has no breath left in him, right? In other words, his, his breathing is just super shallow. He can barely even take in and draw a breath. And yet by the time you get to verse 19, Daniel says that as Jesus spoke to him, he was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. In verse 15, he says, everything that you're saying to me is wrecking me. 
right? I'm withering in your presence, and I'm withering at these visions. But by the time he gets to verse 19, Jesus is speaking, and Daniel says, don't stop talking, Jesus. Just please keep speaking, because your very words have been nourishing to me as you've strengthened me by what you have said. To feast on the very words of God. And this is vital for us as well because another of our enemy's schemes is deception. Not just seduction, but deception. In Genesis 3.13, we read, The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This enemy continues to deceive. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, as, as Paul speaks of the unbelievers, he says, In the case of the God of this world, of Satan, he's blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He blinds the minds, darkens the minds of unbelievers, deceives people, oftentimes through a distortion Right of, 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 of truth and a twisting of truth and a distortion of interpretation of the events that are transpiring around us. Right? There are so many people today who are discouraged and in despair because Satan has twisted and distorted their interpretation of what's taking place around them. Of what's taking place perhaps in their families, or what's taking place within their communities, what's taking place within our nation, what's taking place on a global scale. And Satan wants to dis distort and twist our interpretation of those events so that we don't see them through the lens of the scriptures of what God has revealed about what would come, but that ultimately he was victorious over everything. We want to believe, Satan wants us to believe that all hope is lost. That's the interpretation and the spin that he wants to put on our situation. Right? And that's exactly how Daniel felt. Right? All hope is lost. These visions of the latter days, it's all coming to an end, right? All death, pain, and despair. If that's the case, right? Then just let's live it up. Let's live it up. Let's get as much as we can for as long as we can. And listen, that's the same spin that Satan wants to put on the events that transpire in our lives and in our world today. And yet when God's voice speaks through His Word, it cuts through the distortion and the deception and it begins to give us strength. It begins to nourish us. It begins to fuel us. It gives us lenses to process everything that's happening around us. Right, so that we don't run to Facebook to process it. We don't run to Twitter to process it. We don't run to uh, the New York Times or... Whatever other conservative outlet you, not necessarily conservative outlet, but your conservative outlet of choice, right? Wherever you want to run to process and interpret and funnel all that through somebody's opinion, if you want to funnel it all through someone's opinion, don't funnel it all through someone's opinion, funnel it all through truth. The truth of God's Word. You've got to feast on the Word of God. If you're going to do that, you've got to be in the book. You've got to be in it for your own soul. Church, you got to be in it for ministry to others. What are you going to say to someone? Right? Go read this news article. You got to be in it with others as well. And part of that means on Sunday mornings, part of that means in life groups, as you open the book together, as you open the Bible together, as you 
study the scriptures together. You've got to be in the book to feast on God's word because it's where you will find strength. And then finally, finally, not only do we behold the glory of God, feast on the word of God, but finally know the love of God. Know the love of God. See, what did Jesus say to Daniel that gave him such strength? In, in, in this particular text, what did he say to him? And he says it twice. And in fact, he said it, in fact, we're told it again. Daniel, Daniel referred to this again in cha- earlier in chapter 9. But twice in Daniel chapter 10, Jesus, as he addresses Daniel, he says it this way in verse 11, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. In verse 19, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Two times over the course of those several verses, when Jesus speaks to Daniel, he doesn't say, how, how does he speak to him? Right? He doesn't say, you wearisome, terrible ant, stand up. Right? What does he say? He says, O man. Greatly loved. Other translations say greatly treasured, highly treasured by God. But he's greatly loved. Now, church, there is a difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing something experientially. When the Bible uses that word know, oftentimes it's not talking about knowing something intellectually as if you can, right, in some of your geography books as you're going through school, you might read all about the Grand Canyon, Okay? You can read about the process of erosion. You can read about right, how deep it is, how wide it is. You can read about all of the varying shades of colors that make up the cavern walls. You can read about the river that cuts down through the middle of it. You can read about journeys that people have taken to descend down into it, camp on it, raft on the river, journey all the way down. You can read about all those things and intellectually have a knowledge of the Grand Canyon, but it's a different thing to stand on the rim of that canyon and look out over it and take in its vast expanse. Then you know it. And so when I say know the love of God, I'm not talking about intellectually give assent to the proposition that God loves me. But in the same way that John says in 1 John chapter 2, Verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 1, when he speaks of, his, uh, of the church and he says, listen, beloved, we are God's children and so we are, right? He's poured out His love upon us, right? Richly lavished His love upon us, right? Because there is a difference between going, yes, I understand propositionally that God loves me and actually experiencing the love of God as it rests upon your own heart, And Daniel, in his moment of crisis, has Jesus say to him, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved, Daniel. Now why is this so important? Because one of our enemy's schemes, church, is accusation. In Revelation chapter 10, or chapter 12, verse 10, 
we read these words, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the one who accuses them day and night before our God. And Jesus, listen, Satan, based on Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan no longer has access to the throne room of God to accuse you before Him, but you know who He accuses now? He accuses you directly. So that whenever He comes to you, when He comes to you, and He says, well, why, why would God love someone like you? Why, with what you've done? With where you've been? With the things that you have said? With the things that you have seen? How could God love someone like you? Don't you see all the things that you're going through right, right now? All the difficulties in life that you're experiencing? All the discouragement? You know whose fault it is? It's yours. It's your fault. Don't you see that this is why all this is happening? He accuses and accuses and accuses. And as He does, it prompts this insecurity, this internal conflict, and robs us of the courage to face what is before us. But notice the second time Jesus says, Daniel, O man, greatly loved. What comes right on the heels of that? He says, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Because out of that identity as one who is greatly loved by God, flows, flows security so that we are not fearful, tranquility so that there is peace and a potency so that there's strength and courage no matter what we may face in life. And if you don't know that you're greatly loved, then listen, everything is scary, everything is tumultuous and wavy, and everything is paralyzing. But God says, Jesus says to Daniel, you are greatly loved. Now, how does Daniel know that he's a man greatly loved? And I'll close with this. How does he know that? Because Jesus comes to fight for him. This is beautiful. In verse 20, Jesus asks Daniel, do you know why I have come to you? Now, one answer could be Jesus comes because he's confused and he's here. Jesus is there to give him understanding. That's true. Another answer could be, because you're weak and I'm here to give you strength. And that is true as well. Both of those things are true. Yet Jesus says, the most immediate answer to this question is this. You are overwhelmed and doomed, and I'm here to fight for you and on your behalf. Because in the very next phrase, after he asks him this question, do you know why I've come to you? The very next words out of Jesus' mouth is this, but now I will return and fight. Now I will return and fight. I've come here to strengthen you. Yes, I've come here to give you understanding and clarity. Yes, now I'm going back to fight. Fight for you. He says, I'm going to go and fight the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, these spiritual powers and forces that are too great for you. They're too strong for you. They're too mighty for you. They will crush you, Daniel. But I'm going to fight for you. Y'all are shouting, church. This place would be coming undone, right? Undone. Because I want you to know that Daniel's not the only one Jesus fights for and wins the victory. 
See, Jesus fought temptation in the wilderness as he resists the lies of Satan and he combats them with Scripture. He resisted it when Peter tried to rebuke him and tells Peter, listen, get behind me. Who? Satan, because you're trying to convince me to do things the way that Satan tried to convince me to do in the wilderness is to get to the glory without the cross. And he also resisted it again in the garden whenever he prays and sweats drops of blood, crying out to his father, if there is any other way, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So at each juncture, Jesus wins the victory. And he does so by winning the victory over spiritual forces in the spiritual realm that you and I, we cannot even fathom. In fact, by the time Jesus reaches the cross, His obedience to God, listen, if you think that your temptation is something fierce because you've resisted for a minute, try resisting for an hour. Try resisting for a day. Try resisting for a year. Try resisting perfectly for 30 three years, all the way to the place where it feels like, and not only feels like, but you've been abandoned by your Father because the sin of the world has come to rest upon your shoulders, and yet you continue to walk in obedience, fighting for something and someone for the salvation of many. That He would walk in perfect obedience to the cross for you and I, church. And His victory, the victory that He's won, if you are in Him this morning by faith in Jesus Christ, it is also your victory that is given to you. And you didn't even lift a finger to fight the battle. Because He's been fighting for you. In fact, we're told in, in Colossians chapter 2, listen to how Paul describes it in verses 13 and following, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Can dead people fight? Right? If you don't know the answer to that question, it's no. Right? Dead people cannot fight. And he says, you were dead in your trespasses. You were helpless and hopeless. He says, God made alive together with Him, with Jesus, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside this, nailing it to the cross. And then He says in verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Who's the Him? In Jesus. At the cross, through His death, His burial, and resurrection showed all of the princes of Persia and all the prince of Greece and all of the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world and all of His minions. Who's in charge? As he won the victory. See, Jesus was fighting for Daniel. And that's how Daniel could know that indeed he's a man greatly loved by God. And listen, church, the way you and I can know that too is because Jesus not only fought for Daniel, but he fought for you and he fought for me. Know the love of God. Feast on the Word of God and behold the glory of God. Because you need something more attractive than the seduction of our enemy. You need something more true than the deception of our enemy. 
And you need to experience the love of God and have a firm have it have a firm grip on your soul so whenever the accusations of the enemy come, you're able, you're able to fight. Because you know Jesus fought for you. And he won the battle. Let's pray together. Father, this morning. We humble ourselves before you, God. Professing that indeed we are weak. We are feeble. But you are powerful. And you are strong. And that in the sending of your Son, you showed through weakness what triumph looks like. That you won the victory in what seemed to be utter defeat. But that through the resurrection, through the resurrection, we're able to gather and celebrate that Jesus is alive, that He fought for us and continues to fight for us on our behalf, to empower us with the, His Holy Spirit, Your Holy Spirit, to give us resources that we do not have on our own. So Father, may we become serious about seeking You. We would seek You through Your Word. We would seek You through prayer. We would seek You through fasting. Not as some magical formula, but as a, as a pathway that You've set forth to developing intimacy with You that would strengthen us to have a greater glimpse of Your glory and of what You intend for our lives and for our church. And may we feast on Your Word to be nourished by it so that we would not be like many malnourished Christians who are easily overrun with deception. And may we know, truly, personally, experientially know your love for us. And see that displayed in your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.